Good afternoon and welcome to 1 to 54 Forum. My name is Karen Greenberg and I've convened the program over the last two days and the coming two days. Um, it's a great pleasure to have you all here today. I see some familiar faces, people who've been following the program over the last few days. So thank you very much for coming back. I hope it's been worthwhile. And some new faces too. So it's great to welcome you all to this space. Um, and I just wanted to take a moment, as I've been doing over the previous days, to talk about BC Silver, who's really the inspiration for the programming that we have um, over 1 to 54 this year. And um, she was a really important curator, researcher, thinker in Africa and influenced so many of our careers and lives. And this is really to pay homage to her as somebody whose presence was deeply felt during her lifetime and whose absence is being deeply felt um, today and for very many years to come, I suspect. Um, the themes over these days have been very much constructed around ideas that BC was passionate about. Um, we've talked about empowering women artists on the first day. Yesterday, we talked about the importance of research for artistic and curatorial practice. And today, we're talking about pedagogy and the importance of transforming different systems within the African continent so that they best serve the artists of today and the future. And so I'm delighted to have three incredibly inspirational panelists um, to be talking particularly to their experiences of education in Africa. Um, from Ghana to South Africa, and of course, both, you know, our two speakers and, and our moderator have experience that spans far further than the local context in which they work. Um, we will have a session later today, which I invite you to all stay for, focusing specifically on ASICO, uh, the pan-African roaming kind of educational model, radical model that BC established um, some years ago. So please do um, stay for, for that. This panel's really focusing on um, established kind of tertiary education systems, so universities, and how those are being transformed from within uh, at the moment, and, and indeed what the possibilities are for the future. So um, I'm going to quickly introduce our moderator, and then uh, Zoe will introduce the speakers. Uh, Dr. Zoe Whitley is senior curator at the Hayward Gallery. Um, before that, she was Curator of International Art at Tate Modern and a dear colleague of mine. Um, in 2019, so just earlier this year, she curated the British Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. She's co-curated Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, a really important exhibition that began at Tate and is still traveling around the US. She writes extensively and has authored essays on Lynette Yedemboache, Lubaina Himid, Alexander McQueen, Jack Whitten, and many others. Um, she was named one of Apollo Magazine's 40 Under 40 Thinkers in Europe and one of Artlist's 2017 100 Alternative Powerhouses in the not-for-profit contemporary art world. So thank you very much, Zoe, for moderating, and we look forward to your session. Thank you, Karen. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's so great to see all of you here. Um, it's been a long freeze week, so it's wonderful to have people here supporting um, 154 and... Uh, here, I think specifically under this framework that Karen has created, which as she said, is really meant to honor the legacy of someone who's been um, so instrumental in shaping um, the thinking of really a whole generation of uh, thinkers and curators who have come after. Um, and so I'd like to start by speaking a little bit about that from a kind of slightly personal um, place of reflection. And um, the Center for Contemporary Art in Lagos, Nigeria, is where I'd like to begin. 
Um, it's better known as CCA Lagos, and it was established by Olabisi Silva in 2007. And when she set it up, um, she was really an innovator in terms of thinking about a nonprofit making space where um, risk-taking exhibitions could take place, um, where a library could function so that people could access various forms of knowledge um, in writing about art, uh, gathering space for thinking, poetry, many different kinds of art forms. Um, and in doing that, she was keenly aware of precedents in Nigerian independent arts initiatives. Um, these include the Mbari Club, um, a cultural center that was founded in Ibadan by Uli Bayer in 1961, um, and also the New Culture Center that was established by artist, poet, and architect Demas Nuoko. Um, and related to this, someone like Nwoko co-published the New Culture magazine. So it was a leading arts magazine that forged and championed new directions and modes of expression in African art that spanned theater, um, painting, sculpture, architecture. And I think it's important for us to always acknowledge that you know, firsts are built on other firsts, and that is something that BC was always kind of very ready to acknowledge, to have learned the history and then to disseminate that while also building something for the future. Um, one of the things that she'd said was that the platform that was created by an initiative such as Mbari was key because it was a space where Nigerians and other African colleagues could speak of their own history, culture, and realities. And this is a direct quote. One of the most impressive initiatives that I'd seen is the new culture center set up in the 1970s by artist Demas Nwoko. When one considers the vision of this initiative in particular, especially in terms of his and his family's resolve to complete it, it stands as a testament to what was and still is possible when creating spaces of self-representation. And I think that that will certainly be one of the modes that we talk a lot about what it means to, to represent the self, um, but also to, to forge a community in which that can flourish and thrive. Um, so one of the major questions becomes, how can and do we move forward without the appropriate tools and systems for acquiring and disseminating knowledge? And the same impetus that drove uh, the founding of an art library at CCA Lagos was also the catalyst for ASICO International Art Intensive, um, as Karen mentioned. And this school was designed to give access to information that would lead to meaningful dialogue, exchange, and crucially, collaboration. Until recently, um, there was very much a sense that BC was aware of that intra-African um, collaborations were not necessarily abundant, but there were many structural reasons why that wasn't happening, um, mainly to do with um, something that BC often lamented, is how astronomically expensive it can be to travel within Africa. And you end up having to make these completely um, illogical routes, like via the Middle East or back to Europe, just to be cost effective in your travel. Um, and so after two editions of ASICO, which took place in Lagos, BC recognized that there was a real urgency of engaging other regions on the continent. Um, she was never one of those people who thought, like, I've built it and they will come to me. Um, and ASICO was subsequently organized along um, some really interesting strategic geographies um, cited in countries that would um, be visited on the basis um, in part of colonial history and also questioning certain biases. So if there was a sense that there was a preponderance of uh, 
of Anglophone, and I know we're speaking English today, um, histories that there would be a real sense to try and tease out these other geographies. So Accra became the site of the 2013 Asiko. This was followed by the Francophone edition, which took place in Dakar in 2014, um, and the Lusophone edition in Maputo, Mozambique in 2015. In 2016, Addis Ababa in Ethiopia was identified as the most appropriate location um, because not only is it the only country on the continent not to have been colonized, but it's also the current seat of the African Union. And in those six editions that had taken place, more than 80 participants, so these are emerging artists um, from all over the continent, um, had taken part representing 15 African countries, and there was almost an equivalent number of international faculty. Um, I'm honored to have been one of those international faculty members, so I served as a curatorial observer during the Asiko Dakar, and subsequently served as a faculty member in both Maputo and in Addis. Um, very sadly, Cape Verde was scheduled to be the next venue, um, and it wasn't to be, but BC was as those of us who are fortunate enough to have called her a friend as well as a colleague, um, just an absolute like tiny dynamo <laughs> driven by um, so many multiple goals and ambitions. Um, one was that she was able to recognize the possibilities of embedding local context and expertise within the global canon of knowledge production. So it wasn't necessarily about having to be in New York or Paris or, or somewhere else, but to, to know that it was possible to build something and nurture something where she was from. Um, she was crucially, crucially adamant that it was important to make connections so that long-term, rigorous research projects could be realized even in the absence of obvious support structures. So there was never a sense of making excuses for what wasn't possible. And so many of our bookshelves are very much the better for that, um, to name just one, um, her monograph on J.D. Ojekeri, but there are many, many others. Um, also, there was such a sense of dedication to building future generations of creative networks and critical thinking. Um, and then one that I've certainly benefited from possibly the most is to laugh and to learn over lots of really good food. Um, BC said that we need these spaces of identification, as I've mentioned. Um, and this afternoon, I think what we have the opportunity to do, which I'm very excited about, is to spotlight two of a range of such spaces and strategies. Um, and so this includes their pedagogies and approaches, but also some challenges and triumphs as well. So in short, um, BC Silva was really unapologetic that Western knowledge systems had and still have so very much to learn from the global south. And local sites of expertise um, can really generate a very profound engagement completely irrespective of existing systems or lack thereof. Um, and so BC's independence of spirit, joy in collaboration, and resolve in visionary thinking calls to mind um, what independent filmmaker Ava DuVernay once said, that it's not about knocking on closed doors, it's about building our own house and having our own door. Um, and BC's recognizable um, and responsible, I think, not only for having built you know, CCA as a house of knowledge, or having ASICO as this itinerant house of knowledge, um, 
and collaboration and exchange, but she's also built an incredibly vast and rich compound, um, you know, I'm belaboring this, but um, of ASICO participants so that students of all ages and artists internationally can build respective houses in connections in the same spirit. And really, I think what we're talking about here is that scholarship itself can become a form of like a very radical practice. And so um, without further ado, I'd like to introduce the first of our two speakers. Um, and we're gonna make sure we leave some time for questions at the end from you guys. Um, so Ibrahim Mahama um, was born in Tamale, Ghana, and he's an artist who lives and works in Accra, Kumasi, and also in Tamale. Um, he started his practice through an interest in the history of materials and architecture. Um, and really a sense of failure and delay through specific forms that always inform his choice of sites. Um, and he believes that the works don't only occupy a specific space, but are also occupied within these works and objects. And so he'll be talking a bit more about that. There are residues and points of chaos that are registered as marks and forms within the materials that he select. And these present us with alternative perspectives of looking into the materials and the labor conditions within society at large. And form is so important within that. His work has included objects from jute sacks used to transport commodities to the point of decay, later re-sewn together with a network of collaborators under specific labor conditions, which is then superimposed on architecture um, to monumental and triumphant effect. Um, the politics of the hand and its parallel relation with architectural forms um, therefore become evident. His work, um, a straight line through the carcass of history, it's a very poetic moment, I love that, um, has also dealt with forms related to the Second World War um, and bacterial life forms. His work's been included in the 56th, 57th, and 58th consecutive um, Venice Biennales, as well as Documenta 14, Athens, and in Cassel, um, Orderly Disorderly in Accra, Images and Age of Our Own Making in Denmark, um, The Island and What the Sea Surrounds, um, Valletta 18, Malta, um, and Spectacles and Spectations, excuse me, um, in Kumasi, Ghana, um, and many, many other exhibitions. Um, he finished a year residency at the DAAD in Berlin in 2018, and in March of this year, he opened SCCA Tamale, which is an artist-run space built and dedicated to retrospectives of practices which emerged throughout the 20th century. His current interests are using specific architectural forms within history in the formation of spaces inspired by the potentialities and failures of modernity. So we've got a lot to talk about. Um, Welcome to the stage, Ibrahim. Everybody welcome Ibrahim. Well, thank you very much for this uh, invitation to speak. Uh, it's been uh, a while since I came to the forum. Yeah, but I'm very happy to come under this uh, given circumstance, though it's, uh, it's a very tragic loss to all of us uh, with this his passing. Um, I remember I first met BC in, uh, I think, Accra when they came to do a sequel, mm -hmm. and she came to our university. I was doing my MFA then, and we had to give a presentation to her. So I spoke about the ideas I was working with, and she was very critical, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, <laughs> we, we we always like we we read about her and we had studied about her in the university because in Kumasi 
we were using the old British curriculum. So in the previous genera in the generations before, no one would be interested in someone like Desi, but with Dr. Karikacha and his group with Black Star Lines, they were beginning to be interested in like practitioners and other people who were either working on the continent or elsewhere, um, like doing really significant work and work that somehow reflected on the conditions that were within the continent. Um, so with her ASICO program in Lagos, like the library, they had opened and exhibitions that they were doing, not just looking at artists specifically, but also like things that were happening around art was something that was very inspiring to pay attention to. And I remember I did the f when I did the first international exhibition at the Saatchi Gallery, she came and then uh, she was like, I hope you don't get carried away by this exhibition. Like you have to really stay focused and stay grounded. <laughs> and I was like, it's very early to say this, but uh, I will, I will, I will listen to what you've said. And uh, many years down the line, I realized, even each time we had a conversation, she always spoke to me about this idea that you really have to stay grounded and think about the depth of the work that you're producing. Can I have the pr presentation? Thank you. Yes, so, um, yeah, so uh, they, 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 it starts with, um, it starts with uh, KNUSC, with uh, Black Star Lines. Because as I mentioned before, when I went to the university then, there were a, a new group of professors um, who were beginning to relook at the curriculum that we were working with, and they were beginning to propose new ways or new forms which artists could practice or make work. Because we did painting, and traditionally, as a painter, you were supposed to paint. Uh, but at the same time, we also realized that there were huge gaps within our art history, because um, it, it seems like a lot of the art curriculums uh, on the continent, it doesn't go past the the 40s even. So even if you're talking about abstract expressionism and other things, it seems very, very vague. And also like looking at minimalism, post-minimalism, conceptual arts and other things. So we thought that it was important somehow to consume all these materials and really understand the depth and form of work and the, how broad it could be. So but at the same time, we've also always had like these significant moments in our history, like around the period of independence. For instance, in Ghana, there were many different buildings that were, there were all these different buildings, silos, uh, that were constructed together with the, the National Museum, a part of the Science Museum and the National Museum, but they were never completed. So if you look at all that period, so these are examples of also other buildings which have been put up this is just from the last um, 20 years. So they are scattered all around the country. But I think sometimes it's a bit exciting when you are working on, like when you're working in a space where you don't have like those real, like the institutions, it somehow puts you in a position where you have to rethink about how to position yourself. So for me personally as an artist, that's how come I started working in that manner because our professors would uh, encourage us to go and look for spaces to inspire the works that we would make. So not necessarily because traditionally you would make your painting and then you'd look for a space, a hotel or wherever and hang it. But this time around, how could the decays and the architecture, the failures of it somehow inspire us? So I started going to Oak and my colleagues, all of us were looking at spaces. So some of the students would do exhibitions and like buses. We were trying to make work that somehow could uh, penetrate the art community, like not just the art community, but also just the local people, like people, because 
if we face it, like we make all forms of interest in art all the time, but sometimes as artists or practitioners, we somehow stick to specific spaces and modes of like uh, representation, so it's, it's quite limiting. So in um, 2014, around the time when I started working more internationally, I decided that I was going to dedicate most of the funding for my work in terms of sales of works and other things to the construction of a studio space in Tamale. Um, at the time, till earlier this year, I had never had a name for it. But the name, the SCC, actually came from this person because it was just adding an S to it, which was Savannah Center for Contemporary Art, which was just from uh, CCA Lagos um, because of the model that DC had proposed and all that. So, um, yeah, so I, I started constructing this space, just looking at what it could become. And over the next year or two, I'd realized that it could be something more. So I, my dear colleague, uh, Bernard Quay Jackson, who is an artist, um, he and I started talking because previously, it also within like the professors at the university, they were encouraging a lot of the students to somehow look for old like artists who had made work, but because our curriculum didn't really represent a lot of them, most of them were lost in time or you wouldn't know about them. So we thought, why not write theses and then make books and other things on them? So a lot of students took them as research topics. And one of them was uh, Kofi Dawson. Um, he's an artist who's been working the last six decades. He studied at the Slade Art School after he finished KNUST. And he was one of the first three students that actually enrolled in a fine arts program in the six, early 60s. So we thought it was quite uh, interesting as someone who's been experimenting and also within his generation. It, he was almost, it almost seems like they had cut him out of the picture. You know, even when I was in art school, in uh, high school, and we had to study artists, his name never came up, you know. So uh, I thought it was really important, just as a lot of the monuments and also that those gaps within our history, I thought it was important, first and foremost, to build the content of the institution around these uh, figures, not just within arts, but also looking at all other fields, like engineering, architecture, and other things. So we started working on his retrospective. So as part of it, I had to, um, um, like these are just images of like spaces that I've been looking at, that the, some of the railway stations which were built by the British in the early 20th century, which became inspiring points for the institution. Because a lot of the spaces that we have for showing contemporary art are mostly very domestic, so it doesn't really allow artists to somehow make leaps in their mind in the way that they can think about their work. So I, I was borrowing a lot, in as much as I was using them as production spaces, I was also thinking about what they could present, put in an uh, institutional uh, context. So um, the, the, uh, so that's uh, Bernard Quay Jackson with uh, uh, colleagues and students from the university. And um, th it's important because at the university, we were beginning to look at this idea of community building. Yeah, because in a, uh, historically, artists were somehow trained to look at their individual practices. But we thought, no, it cannot continue because it's not sustainable. But if we think about the collective, in a way, artists, young artists, if you give them responsibility, they have a way of actually learning from it and also contributing to the development and the sustenance of the art forms that we want to see in the future. So um, we 
the plan was to work with them when the institution was opening to somehow set up the exhibition. So I had got a lot of them to Mr. Dawson's studio, so Hassan and then uh, Arthur Jackson and a couple of other artists uh, who are doing their MFA now. They were with him in his studio for more than a year, helping to restore. Because they, our National Museum is a complete disaster. And uh, if it's, it's not possible to get some wor uh, works from there. And the works that are there also, are, a lot of them are just decayed because they've not been kept properly. And also with these artists also, because they are families, they didn't really understand what they were doing. Their works were kept in really bad conditions. So the idea was somehow to work with him to restore his life's work and also to get people to work with him, both street artists and artists from the university alike, to help him develop his work and then give it, give it this new life and context. So this was the exhibition when we opened it. Um, we had a talk. Um, for him, so a lot of the paintings that you see were paintings that were redone together with the students. And the students actually built the entire structure that you see. So for me, it's also important in a way that we look at institutional building like and creating exhibitions. Um, it, like learning in the process because a lot of them, it suddenly gave them this sense of confidence. They realized that, oh, after all, it's not, there's nothing really special about making an exhibition. And normally that's what students think when they're in the university because they see exhibitions and it looks really fantastic. But once they're given the opportunity through just, you give them responsibility and they, they're able to achieve something, it gives them that sense of confidence. Um, so um, we decided that we're going to focus our programming mainly on children. So we do a lot of workshops uh, with children. Um, and the area, it's in Tamale in the north. So it's predominantly Muslim. So um, there is this idea that um, the Islamic tradition doesn't really accept like figurative representation and all that. But the schools actually come and they use the center very well. Um, so we have uh, films. Um, we have all these workshops with the artists. So for me, it's important to think about the generational gap. Because that's the thing about us. The, the older generation somehow thinks that the younger generation, they are not doing proper art because now they're doing things called installation and yeah. And for some reason, the younger generation also think, oh, these guys didn't make any work. They were just painting on canvas and there's a lot more we can do. But I think that there is a lot that we've learned across the ages. Yeah, we've borrowed quite a lot. And the idea of painting is just like a medium that can be spread out, you know. Uh, someone like Yinka was very important when we were students in school because uh, thinking about the depth and form of his work and even just thinking about the sheer materiality like the, the wax print and what it could do onto the figure and then onto like the books and all that. It's something that somehow expands the thinking what can happen even within like a space. Um, yeah. So they, yeah, so just working with colleagues like to create that uh, program so we create, we turn the space into like a classroom periodically, and then we do all these workshops with these kids, which traditionally would not happen because you would not have a space to be able to do that. Yeah, so um, one of the other ideas was somehow to also intervene within land. So because there's a lot of land that is also being sold, and then people would normally just buy them and then for real estate or they wait and speculate. But the idea was to buy these land forms and somehow intervene, like create farms, uh, leave spaces for institutions, for parks, for theaters, for cinemas, for like archaeological like museums. So I started thinking about all these, like how can we have conversations with like 
all these like villages who have like these archaeological uh, findings that they've kept over the years because when they settled on those lands and they were having farms, they found so many pots and figures and things that were buried in the ground 2,000, 3,000 years ago. So we started, I started having conversations with people. So I started working with engineers to buying uh, some specific lands which we could get material from for making special bricks for building in those uh, uh, areas, thermal qualities. So digging, yeah, like looking at producing like materials that can be used in building specific structures within those uh, hot climates. Uh, so I started building other spaces. So this is uh, the, the studio space, which is yet to open next year in uh, May. And also not just looking at the, the, the interior of the spaces, but also looking at other objects. So for instance, uh, this is a, a, a new space which we were building. And the, the, on the other hand, it's uh, the interior of an aircraft. Uh, so thinking about how different objects could also play a role. Um, we, we've been very fortunate. We've had a lot of donations from like um, institutions, autograph, white cube, with cinema projectors, um, books. So we've opened a library, thinking about opening a children's library, opening like uh, combining the idea of the cinema with like some of these objects like the airplanes where children have screenings in these objects that somehow seem out of the world in the middle of, let's say, a farmland. So combining all those ideas that seem like very disconnected as a form of a, a practice. So I also started talk, uh, negotiating with the railways in Ghana to buy some of the old trains that were used in the colonial period that were being scrapped and then converting them into classrooms and other forms that uh, children could use. And also just, because how would it be if you somehow turned part of them into like archeological, like th that the gap between those histories, I think that is somehow important to acknowledge. So these are some of the uh, airplanes that uh, we got. Yeah, so like just simple things, you know. The idea is just to demystify what it means to have like an institution where people can inhabit in a way that when they are growing up, because I, I think it's unfortunate sometimes we ask a lot of questions which I think we shouldn't be asking these questions now. So as an artist, also having the privilege to work with like really important galleries, I thought that it's somehow it bestows this, uh, I don't know, responsibility upon you to be able to intervene back in a system because it's very easy to constantly say, oh, but we don't have uh, the institutions, but the infrastructure has always been the gap on the continent because the government spent a lot of money. And it also comes back to this idea, like even when you look at the, something like Venice, which is very expensive to produce, how do you consolidate spending that ton of money in doing an exhibition versus half of that money could easily put up an institution on a continent and support a program for maybe two or three years. So that's the, some of the, so for me, it's like a question I'm grappling with. I'm trying to understand my place as an artist, the objects I make, but at the same time, what I have inherited over the years together with, let's say, mentors from the university and then other artists and people, practitioners like Bissy, and um, what they've done and how it can somehow lead us into maybe uh, another, uh, a different future. So this is the last image. And I like this image particularly because it places the, the aircraft in the perspective of the building and that frame of having, because ordinarily it seemed such a gap, like the airplane belongs to its world on the runway and then the buildings belong somewhere. But I think that is very important that we start to create institutions 
that somehow bridge that gap between architecture? Can an artist practice be looked at architecturally, even like as a painter? Because I, I, uh, most of these spaces, I designed them myself. So uh, you don't need fans or air conditioning. So there is a way that the air goes through the space, even with the, yeah, so uh, painting somehow, the form somehow immediately changes. It becomes something that leaves a certain mark and stain within history, within a place. And I don't know, there is, we, we talk more. If you leave me, I'll talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> So that's yes, it. Thank you. <laughs> You're gonna, yeah. We can leave that there. Are you happy to come up here, or would you like to sit? Okay. Um, so that does give us lots of food for thought. Um, our next speaker is Nontobeko Ntombela, and is a curator based in Johannesburg. She currently works at the Witwatersrand School of Arts, developing the postgraduate programs in curatorial and exhibition practices. She previously worked as the curator of the contemporary collection at the Johannesburg Art Gallery, JAG, and in the Durban Institute of Technology Art Gallery. Her curatorial projects include a fragile archive at JAG, MTN New Contemporaries, for which she was guest curator, layers at Goodman Gallery Project Space in Johannesburg, Modern Fabrics at the Bag Factory, Johannesburg, From Here to There at the Association of Visual Arts in Cape Town as part of Cape 07 Fringe. Um, she's also participated in international programs including the Bilateral Exchange Project between Germany and South Africa, Close Connections, Africa Reflected, a curator's workshop in Amsterdam, Break the Silence, Scotland, and has presented papers in local and international conferences. She served on the National Executive Committee of Visual Arts Network of South Africa Committee, VANSA, um, since 2006. Um, she's previously served on the Arts for Human Rights Trust Board and KwaZulu-Natal Society of Arts, the African Arts Center, and the Art and Culture and Tourism Department Cultural Board. Uh, we also have the honor of having her twice <laughs> because she was also speaking in the panel of Karen's and my former colleague, um, Elvira Janganiose, um, earlier in the week, focusing on her um, really crucial research into um, black women modernists in a South African context, as context, as well as her exhibition, um, Fragile Archive, JAG. So I welcome you to the stage. Thank you. Um, good afternoon. I'm really glad that I didn't bring any pictures after that. <laughs> There's no way of coming back, but I will. <laughs> um, I was asked to come and hopefully reflect on um, the conversations that I'm supposed uh, working with, with VC as part of a CEQA program, um, as well as the work that I do at WITS. Um, but maybe for entertainment purposes, can we have the last slide from the? So um, I was part of ASICO um, 2015, 17, and 18, Maputo, Addis, and Accra. And um, in the conversations, and part of the reasons why this 
conversation at VC continued was I, starting at Vidsel, I've been interested in seeing ways in which uh, transformative pedagogies are implementable within universities. And we know that these are challenging sort of places to work with because universities by their very nature are expecting particular objectives. Um, I suppose one of the, the cliches between the conversations here is that I'm talking about motions of dismantling certain types of um, canons and um, here we are sort of speaking about building other kinds of institutions. So at WITS, the conversation has really largely been how do we build a curatorial program that isn't trying to mimic programs of elsewhere and how does that begin to think again of what many of you probably be familiar with, with conversations around decolonization around university um, education and to think about that in relation to this program that we're trying to build. So um, working with VC in the last, well, for, the, for three consecutive turns was to really think about a program that is really thinking about the, the notion of where we place forms of education. And I wanted to, I can't find my page now, wanted to reflect a little bit on the two people that have been quite central to this thinking. Um, in the last year, for the first time last year, we, we began to offer um, a master's in curating. And this is coming out of a period of six years where we've offered courses that have now come together into this program. And the thinking around this, sorry guys, I will have to, my lovely notebook. Mm, sorry. There are two thinkers that have really influenced this for me. Um, Kali Kutsia's notion of accentedness, as well as Jabulun Dabele's notion of uh, rediscovering the ordinary. Um, Jabulun Dabele, for me, has been a kind of starting point where he makes a, a, a really important statement where he says, those who have not domesticated knowledge at the institutional level are doomed to receive knowledge even about themselves secondhand. And so, in a way, so thinking about developing this curatorial program, BC and I have had this conversation, where does knowledge reside? And how do we participate in these notions of transformative pedagogies and thinking about decolonization? And of course, as we know in South Africa since 1994, there's been a long held conversation around transformation. And for a long time, this transformation has been concentrating on, I suppose, shifting the identities of who represents institutions as opposed to thinking really about the practicalities of what kind of knowledge is being shared within students. And of course, as we know, 2015-17, students decided that they will uh, take it upon themselves to challenge those who are holding on to particular canons um, and ask for a different kind of learning environment, one that recognizes the different kinds of learners in the classroom. So Kali Kutsia has been really interesting 
when she talks about the accented futures. Um, and the way that I've understood her work is really to think about accentedness not in the way that we sound, but really about the idea that conflicting histories can exist in one place of a conversation to think about how we engage um, new knowledges. So in the one form, how do we then think about um, curating in spaces where um, notions of institutions are challenged, um, funding is challenged? How do we think about notions of curatorial practices where we have institutions that are barely um, surviving and we say that there's an interest for curating? And of course, in a conversation, a conference I once went to, there was this a joke that was made that we, the way we're moving towards curating, because everybody wants to be a curator, it's going to be one curator, one artist. So how then do you think about um, a university program in South Africa with all of these challenges? So we're challenging the notion of pedagogy. We're challenging the notion of um, um, institutions and the kinds of institutions. And as we know, we know a lot of the kind of collective practices that have come out of that. Um, and then to think about their program. So working with VC has been interesting because for for me, she emphasized a particular kind of learning that is outside of the classroom. So being able to travel with her to Maputo, to Addis, she presented the possibility of a meeting place, um, a possibility of an accented environment in which different types of knowledges coexist in one place, and a conversation can take place about how to deal with the limitations of institutional baggages or the limitations of resources in thinking about programs. Um, some of the, I mean, today, some of the people that I met in Maputo have been interesting, been in conversation for the longest time. They continue to frame the way that one is thinking about um, curating. Um, and so the, the, the masters that we have now developed really thinks about ways of learning that is outside of the institution. Um, we think a lot about excursions. We think a lot about um, having conversations with other colleagues. Um, we think a lot about, we have to think about the museum and its practices. So a lot of collaborations that happen with the Vitaup museums and other museums that are around us. We also think a lot about um, uh, ways in which the curator who may not end up in an institution may have a place for practice. So notions of decolonization, de-schooling, and learning are part of the ways in which the, the, the program has been formulated. And I thought, well, given the fact that we are at a place where a question around what is education, there was no way of having an image to kind of represent that. Um, but to also think about the way that um, access is created to knowledges that are outside of the university structure. So, I mean, I was hoping that this conversation is a conversation where I can ask questions as opposed to a kind of very structured, this is what we do, because actually what we do is at the moment being tested all the time. Yeah. So if we come up, please have a seat. That's the perfect segue for us to begin a conversation. Yes. Um, and I think to that end, um, 
it seems appropriate to not just restrict the conversation to the three of us, but to jump right in, making sure that we're engaging everybody as much as possible. But I feel like you've really seized upon what for me is the connective thread. And it is this notion of um, creating spaces where different types of knowledge can coexist and not necessarily replacing one structure with a new structure, like dismantling one for the sake of it and then effectively replicating something new that inherently would then also have its own strictures. Um, but do we, I guess maybe the roving mic is useful. Oh, she's left, but I was gonna hand, oh, okay, I was gonna hand this one. Um, are there any questions? Because they, they thank you both for to really, um, I mean, personally, I found it so satisfying to hear what you have to say, um, and to Karen and everyone for, for organizing this, because I think, again, for those of us who, it's so easy to get stuck in whatever environment you're in and to not have a sense of, of what's going on beyond that, that I think it's incredibly helpful. And I think even in terms of a reading list or going forward, the references you've mentioned, knowing that there's Black Star Lines and so many things happening um, in Kumasi as well. I think there are a lot of different, um, I don't know, I feel like threads or leads or something that have been thrown out that, that can be picked up upon for many people. Because I also, I often get fatigued by this, this constant refrain of, you know, there's no structures or, you know, oh, well, I've heard there's nothing there. And it's just not true <laughs> because there are people doing the work. It just may not look like what we might be used to, you know, in London or something. And it doesn't have to be that. Um, so. Hello. Um, thank you for the, for today's conversation and presentations. That was really nice. I have a question for you, Ibrahim. Um, I'm really curious to know what's the financial model for NCCA. Do you still, I mean, do you still fund it through your sales and are you trying to get another, let's say, more independent um, source of income for the actual project that would be uh, taking place in Ghana and staying there. Yeah, so um, I guess I don't need a mic. Uh, yeah, originally, until date, I've always funded it with my own money from the work. Actually, the talks have recorded, so. Okay, so. Oh, but the, the, he's wearing the, the okay. this <laughs> lapel mic. Yeah. Thank you. So yeah, so I've always funded it, but at the same time, we're also talking to, we're also thinking about future funding solutions like this. Um, and also like uh, my gallery has been very supportive uh, throughout the, this whole enterprise of like setting up the institution and also like um, um, building like this studio space which we're hoping to open next year. And um, I work with a Palazzo Gallery from Italy and for many years um, when I started working, I was working with them. And they were very helpful also like in trying to like at least there's a conflict between because that's one thing I've struggled with between uh, placing your work as an artist selling it and then at the same time also being able to have money to be able to work on a project because it's one of the contradictions of capital that somehow 
I think that artists have to learn to deal with. Because sometimes artists say, oh, I don't want to have any, like, like, I don't want to take money from anyone. I'm like that. I'm like, I don't want to take money from anyone. But at the same time, so there are some moments when you realize that this is a contradiction that I can deal with, you know? <laughs> yeah, but for some people, they're like, oh, every money is money, you know? But at least I think uh, it's somehow there is some sense of ethics that uh, you somehow try to, yeah, you somehow try to deal with. So we have an artistic director for this space. I think you met him, uh, Salom Koji. He's yeah. a PhD student and he was my colleague in undergrad. And we have like a team of people uh, managing the spaces and um, I have to pay them every month so that is something I have to deal with through my work currently because I still haven't gotten to that point and we as an institution we are still trying to learn what our place is and the kind of funding that we want to access for the expansion of the institution going forward in terms of its programming and all that so it's I don't know if this answers your question. It's still young, but at the same time, we have some, yeah. No, you, you answered my question, but I'm only asking because, I, I mean, it makes sense uh, what you do, and it's actually really nice. I was familiar with your work, but I didn't know about this space. Uh, I'm only asking because when we are in a position of wanting to create or participate or take part in like similar platforms or institutions, either from the diaspora or being there like all year long, but not having incomes from sales or anything like that, or not wanting to be controlled by public funding or s things like that, then how do you do those? So that's, that was my question. Um, so how do you then plan uh, that future um, that is independent of your own practice. Because at the same time, your practice takes time, but the time that you put in your current space uh, is taken away from your practice, so. No, but I don't think they are two separate things. It's okay. a practice, as I oh. said before. Yeah, so at some point, I think that there, it's, it's not very common mostly to find very young artists who've been able to practice to a certain point in their practice where they no longer feel. so. For instance, I'm very lazy these days when it comes to making <laughs> objects, yeah, because I'm more interested in how we can create these institutions that somehow recontextualizes the practice because we're still in this space where we're thinking, artists are still thinking, oh, if I, even if I decide to become an artist and I make work, what kind of institution is this work going to be contained in? Mm -hmm. So those were some of the questions that I was, we are still grappling with those. And I think they are unnecessary questions to grapple with at this point, we've come such a long way. So if for now we have the opportunity to somehow b create spaces that can transform those questions that now we know that this is possible, we can occupy space and already there are spaces around us like in Ghana, like through the installations and things I did. Mm. The, the, the wrapping of the buildings, in my opinion, when I started working was a way of proposing what was possible to look outside the framework of not having those institutional spaces that existed in the West because we had our own somehow failures in our own modernities and there were spaces which we could contain or they could contain the ideas that we're working with. But now, through the capital that has come from that same work, it's possible to go back and then construct actual spaces which can begin to infest and host all these other practices and works. Then we can go ahead and ask other questions in the future. I also have an observation yeah. to add to that. Just 
to, to your question, because there was something about the question that was posed in the singular, yeah. and when you were at the lectern, one of the things that I found incredibly helpful in terms of thinking about this was precisely this notion of success not being something that was solitary. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so through the working together and the constant use of we, yeah. um, it's, that's definitely something that I found that yeah. BC was always willing to do. Yeah. So, you know, I was, so I was very struck yeah. by that, that yeah. again, so this kind of, this sense of the question, how do I do this, mm -hmm. is not entirely seemingly the question that you'd posed. Yeah. And so the fact that you've shown such a phenomenal range of solutions, even since I last saw you, is partly based on, on, on not necessarily relying solely mm -hmm. on yourself. Uh, thank you very much uh, for really interesting uh, contributions. I was just wondering, um, because I'm creating an immaterial platform that is uh, moving around uh, yeah. from country to country, and I was so interested in uh, in this reflection and dialogue you had uh, with BC about the independent curator and the role of the independent curator in in um, in relation to the institution. Uh, and also in relation to funding, um, how, how, what was your like? Could, could you elaborate a little bit more on on that uh, role um, from your point of view? Well, um, I don't think we've found answers yet. Um, but from the lessons from uh, BC, where the context, collaborative practices are key. Um, one of the things that was quite interesting for us in the way that we're thinking, um, you know, with students, it's outside of the university. We are talking to people outside of the university from the get-go. Um, we're operating with spaces and constantly teachings are focused outside of that going into a class and there's a seminar and these are the kind of canons you have to follow. Of course, those moments come into play. But um, a large part of it is about sort of like throwing people in a space and saying, well, can we figure out how that works? And can we evaluate how that particular thing can provide us with solutions? Particularly, funding is a real thing. So students have to contend with the fact that if we say, here's a project, make it happen, but think about these kinds of things that can be a structure that you, you, you work with, um, one of the examples I can give is the collaboration we're doing with um, an organization in Lubumbashi, um, uh, Waza, and we're working with them where we have um, them come and, and work. An artist would be identified. We have um, a project that looks at the historical objects. An artist will come and literally students have to figure out how to accommodate that artist, language is an interesting barrier um, because coming from a French-speaking country, those are the things that for the program are really central is how do you constantly reshift the poles of where knowledge sits um, and to think about the challenges that provide. And lots of frustrations, of course, but I don't, I don't think we're working towards a singular model. We are trying to work it out as we go. It's not a very, it's, not, it's poorly funded program, so <laughs> that's part of the challenge. Yeah, 
Well, in South Africa, no. The art museums are looking for collaborations that they can get aid and assistance. So it is in the approach that, hey, we, we, we have something we know together. Um, and maybe if we come together collaboratively and work this through a program, um, we can then do a project together. There's been conversations with the Johannesburg Art Gallery um, and potentially doing something with them. They are really, really struggling. And for us, this is a really fruitful place to be working from as opposed to going, we're only gonna go with institutions that have the money because that's where students need to be learning from. It, it mm. doesn't, that's not where we want to be. And this is all fundamentally things that we see, you know, sort of push towards. Said we, we're not coming, in fact, when I first joined, she was in Maputo, and she said, we're not coming to South Africa for the very <laughs> reason. <laughs> we're gonna be in Maputo because it is about, mm. you really, the, the participants need to figure out how within a very challenged space, work out to produce projects. Sorry, I didn't give you. <laughs> you actually kind of preempted one of my questions <laughs> before this with the idea of language. And this question is for all of you, but um, more so I guess for Ibrahim, in terms of um, language constructing and shaping um, knowledge learning and knowledge making, especially for younger people, how do you approach that in sort of creating these new infrastructures uh, because knowledge would be the base and very much um, the thing holding it together um, and language more so, yeah. Yeah, so I guess, um, I don't know specifically what you're referring to language. Uh, are you referring to the mode of communication in terms of like, uh, like somehow filtering like information down to like People, information, oh, histories, yes, but also when you talk about disassembling those hierarchies of yes. what it means to be an artist or artistic practice, mm -hmm. how do you convey that to children without mm -hmm. using particular vocabulary that is embedded within the global north sort of? Yeah, I know. guess that's why we try as much as possible to approach it also through like the film program and also through the workshops. Uh, because we ourselves, the, there was a tendency because because of the way that our university was operating, because I still work with the university, um, the painting and sculpture department. So most of the most of our colleagues at the institution, one way or the other, have studied at the university, and they really understand like uh, not just their their artists themselves that they just don't understand their own artistic practice, but trying to really situate that within like a more historical context. And the reason why we chose the North is because of the same thing she was talking about, going to the place where you would ordinarily not expect that a project like that would be done. Mm -hmm. Because it requires a lot more work. Because it's, well, first and foremost, it's, in a, it's not in Accra, the capital, where people can easily access it. Because sometimes it just becomes like a space. Some, you could, you could just wake up, you're walking around the city and you see it and you're like, oh, I'm walking into it. But this, you have to make an effort to go to it. And also we had to situate it in a community that was now growing. They are, now, they are yet to construct roads, they are yet to construct drainage systems. So when, when we bought the land originally in 2014, there was no electricity, water or anything. So all those things had to be negotiated with the state in order to do it. And you'd be surprised when you have to use your own money to pay the government to 
supply electricity to a place. So that somehow began to affect the community when you're discussing arts because with the airplanes and other things, we always have like the community, the, we're working with um, the young men and women there in making the bricks and other things to construct the institution. So there are always these conversations that are had about what the role of these spaces are. And they are predominantly farmers. Mm. So when you buy land in those regions, you own the land, but you, you don't own what's on the land, the surface <laughs> of the land. Yeah. So someone could come and farm on it or cut a tree or do whatever once the land is not occupied. So that, is, that was something that was very important to deal with because in a Western context, it doesn't, you can't go on someone's land and occupy it. But this, you can occupy it and you can even use it. So that's why it was important to create the model of the institution around how the community's involvement in it because through conversations and all that, it begins to break it down. So you don't have to ask people to come to the institution. They come because they have a sense of place in the construction of it in relation to the kind of ideas that we want to propose. So I always think that one day the institution will become, will, will grow into something that we all never really imagined because it's the, the, the kind of models that we're working with, they are so loose and then we allow for many things to happen that each, every time that you wake up, you realize that, oh, there is something really interesting that happened based on the formation of this and then it goes from there onwards. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, um, so thank you very much for the yeah. presentations. Um, my question is for Nonto Becker. I'm yeah. so sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Right. Uh, you mentioned two influencers. Could you please just repeat that for us? Oh, two influencers? Yes, uh, you mentioned two influencers and two titles, I believe. So, Jabalin uh, Derene's work, he published in the 80s. It's called, the book is called The Rediscovery of the Ordinary. And he talks about domesticated knowledges. He talks about intimacy. Um, and he's interested in self-writing. Um, and then you have, um, I spoke about uh, Kali Kutsia's Extensive Futures. And she talks about the idea of um, a kind of... Um, classroom that is recognizing a sharing of knowledges that may not necessarily be unified. So the idea of extensive futures is that um, the example of a teacher who gets to be the teacher may not necessarily be the one who holds, who's ordinarily seen as the teacher. And so that collapse of hierarchy is, is fundamental to the idea of, of extensiveness. Thank you. Are there any other questions? Hi, um, I'd just like to say thank you for what was a fascinating talk. Um, I really learned a lot. Um, so we, I guess we talked about the new infrastructures and different elements of those new infrastructures from creating physical spaces and challenging what a physical space could do and also creating spaces for conversation and collaboration. And I just guess following on from the last question around influences, what role do you see, 
I guess, literature and publications, new literature and publications, mm -hmm. in terms of creating these new educational systems? And, and how is that impacting what you're doing? I mean, it's a question for, for both of you, actually. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's looking at me already. <laughs> uh, um, well, to, I have to be very careful what I say here. Um, they, and it was a conversation that happened on Wednesday, which is around this idea of thinking beyond what we know as the canon. So thinking, um, thinking about Andrew Zaskin's work around canons, partisan canons, and thinking of kind thinking cross-disciplinary um, in in the way that the way that I well have been engaging with literature and at, at least the very least the, the kind of new knowledge that or publications that have been coming out is to think through how does one engage with places that are not necessarily always confident in a conclusion, right? So publications that are about expanded fields, that are about cross-conversations. Um, there's a conversation that's happened quite recently in this idea of uh, artistry borrowing quite particularly from literature. Um, because, and particularly from African literature, and this is quite common in South Africa now, this idea that um, there the conversation that is about transformative pedagogies has been particularly more expanded. And there's been far more engaging room to think about uh, visual cultures uh, as a space in which to talk about the place of art that isn't necessarily fixed in a particular singular form or particular singular canon. So a place for publications is that. How do you think, uh, how is publications and how are publications manifesting in ways that are not always providing conclusive answers about practice, but are invested in process? Um, and something perhaps maybe that I didn't mention earlier on is that process is very fundamental and even my own practice that um, I don't produce exhibitions that are about giving one single answer, but rather providing um, questions. Uh, and those questions can build on with other sub-questions because as we know it, uh, structures of all, you know, formalistic understandings of canons tend to limit us and tell us that knowledge only ends here and can only follow this structure. So I suppose writing, you have, interesting young writers in South Africa like Tuli Kamete who are constantly like pushing that idea of how do we speak. Um, I'm not very fond of re-emphasizing the word decolonization because I think it re-registered re as other things, but to think about expanded fields. Mm. No, I think I would, um, the, the idea of the non-conclusive, you know, as you spoke, speaking about is important. For instance, in one of the biggest influences that we had in our university was uh, Dr. Kari Kutcher. And he himself, uh, he had the same training that myself I had, like his undergrad to his PhD at the university. But he also went back to school to do mathematics. And we're always mm -hmm. kind of asking this question of why he would study math. But he was just interested in math because he, is, he was interested in the questions that mathematics posed. 
And for him, it was a way of allowing us to be able to translate that in terms of thinking about the, uh, the creation of form. What it, does it really mean for an artist to establish that thing that he calls form and what can it be beyond that the established canon? So there is, um, there is, uh, there is an exhibition that we are doing next year, uh, uh, the next retrospective, and it's on an artist. His name is Ajimano Se. One of my colleagues, Kwesi uh, Ohenia, is curating it. And um, he is, uh, Ajimano Se was a painter. So but at the same time, he's been interested in the, in literature, he's been interested in like uh, novels, poems, and other things. And over the years, though he was painting and making sculptures, he was also um, translating some of Ayukoyama's novels into plays and adapting it for stage. So he would mm -hmm. go around places and perform them. But the most important thing that he also did in some of the communities was to translate it into like local languages. And also uh, now we are thinking about the model, what it could take, even like in the in terms of dissemination, like of working with radio stations and then uh, transcribing that into different languages across different regions and then playing them on the airwaves as an exhibition model, which ordinarily as a form, because he's, uh, he's also written some novels and we want to translate uh, some of it into animation. Mm -hmm. And as, at the same time, using like the sculptures that he's made, scanning them 3D and then using them as characters in the animation. So when you think about like for instance, we've gone through the very traditional system. So we're always thinking, what can you produce that somehow defies what is already there and what can constantly be pushed and pushed and yeah. pushed. So it's a matter of, yeah. That's it's a different I, relationship to power. Yeah. That's what I keep hearing yeah. and that's what I think yeah. is particularly fascinating yeah. about this, is there's often this sense that somehow mm. um, with expertise comes power yes. and then people would come to you and you would be the kind of sole repository of whatever it is, but precisely your use of the word dissemination or what it means to get something yes. out there and, and reach people in these other ways, not just for the sake of it, but because fundamentally the role is not to keep it for yourself yeah. and what the and the way the modes of expression for that can be many. Yeah. And that reminds me what yeah. you're saying about like being in yeah. In so many countries, this used to always get on me about like being too motherly <laughs> to all of the young artists. Um, and she'd be like, they have to figure out how to get around the city. Yeah. Don't help people. Yeah. <laughs> Don't. They have to do it for themselves. Right. But even, even to the previous question about a relationship to history, any of the places we went, the relationship to history was very practice-based. Yeah. It wasn't a kind of historian coming mm -hmm. out to us and telling us the yeah. history or, you know, a very long reading list necessary to read about the history. Though those things are also helpful. You know, yeah. we shouldn't ignore that. Yeah. But there was so much of a sense of learning through the doing, mm -hmm. like what it meant to go and visit sites that were kind of fundamentally important um, at various moments in the history of a country or a city um, and engaging with it in that way imprinted it and embedded it in all of us and certainly in a number of young artists who maybe had never before left their hometown. Um, to see the ocean for the first time means something special, like when we're in Mozambique or, mm -hmm. you know, there, there are a number of different things like that where I know people who won't have read the history but could tell all of us, like, fascinating and crucial things about a number of historical events that happened in a given place because of the month they'd spent kind of living it and experiencing it and talking to people every day. The other thing that was quite interesting with Visi, just to add to what you're saying, in their conversation with, with 
you could see that she is fostering a kind of collaborative mobilization. Um, and what was for me, like when I when I first went to Maputo, I was ready to have a session, right? This is what we do. This is how you kind of work through, because I was working with the curating group. And, but immediately as we started with that group, it was very clear in that environment that the learning is two ways here. Mm -hmm. um, I have to listen as much as I have to give and contribute. Um, and part of what, that was very, very powerful in the sense that everybody that came, people came from different places, had to first deliver or share where they were coming from and how that was then resolved and how do they then collaborative work together. And I thought that was really profound in the way that you could see at the end, they were all working together. There was an, an element of sensitivity about people's backgrounds and environments and um, institutional understandings towards something that becomes the groups that I've known from, from the, the, those moments are all working together. And so you have people who, ha who are continuing to mobilize each other and those networks. And that for, for me was the kind of very profound thing about BC's um, school. That might be a good place to end. Are we, I'm not, I don't have the time. Then I think that's the appropriate yes. place to end. And also to give a plug to my colleagues next talk. If you're happy to stay in a windowless room, because it will be brilliant. It's led by Tamar Garb, is it not? Um, and Shudabrata Sengupta and, and Eddie Chambers. And they will be specifically speaking about ASICO in, in far more detail than, mm -hmm. than we That's did. Awesome. But um, it will be really illuminating, I'm sure. Thank you for listening.